Psalm 22. Uh, just a reminder, we've read every week a summary of the Psalms, just kind of a statement about what the book of Psalms entails. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. I had him as a professor in seminary, and he wrote a book. And in that book, he gave a summary, like a one- or two-sentence summary of every book of the Bible. And they're so, I, I don't know why, but I, summaries help me to really kind of process information. Here's this summary of the book of Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. That's what the Psalms are about. They remind us that God is deserving of our worship. He's deserving of our trust. No matter what is happening in our lives, no matter the circumstances, God is worthy of our worship and worthy of our trust. Amen? And every Psalm reminds us of that reality. And Psalm 22 is uh, what I call the Psalm of the Cross. The Psalm of the cross. I love this statement from Derek Kidner. He wrote, No Christian can read this psalm without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. So it's going to be neat to think about the cross tonight, looking at the cross through the lens of the 22nd psalm. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump right in. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the way, Lord, that you love us. Your love is amazing. Your love is unconditional. Your love is unfailing. As your word says, your love endures forever. So we are grateful, Lord, for your love for us. And because of your love for us, we can be forgiven of our sins because of the finished work of Christ. Because of your love for us, we can call you Father because of your love for us. We know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Because of your love for us, we know that we can rest uh, in your promises. And so, God, I pray that as we rejoice in your love tonight, we would see... Uh, your love clearly displayed in the 22nd Psalm, and that we would be moved by this picture of your love, and we would be transformed. And God, I pray that you would use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word. And we'll thank you and praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Psalm of the Cross. No Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. So, right off the bat, I want to just say this is a messianic psalm. Uh, Periodically, as you walk through the psalms, you see a psalm that is messianic. And messianic is just a fancy word that means it's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And so, these are words that were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked upon the face of the earth. And yet, they so clearly speak about Jesus, about his person's work, his ministry. And the 22nd Psalm is one of the most well-known examples of a messianic psalm. So here's the question. How do we know? How do we know this is a messianic psalm? And by the way, the easiest way to know that a psalm is a messianic psalm is when the verses in the psalm are, some of the verses are used in the New Testament and refer to Christ. That's a very, it's a, a, a dead giveaway that this is about Jesus Christ. So let me just give you an example. Look there in verse 1 of Psalm 22. It says, This is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. It starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Immediately when you read that phrase, your your thoughts go to Jesus hanging on the cross over in Matthew 27, 46. He takes these words for his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk some more about that phrase in a few moments. But Jesus takes these words as his own. Verse 7, look in verse 7 of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Now, keeping that in mind, turn, hold your place, but turn to Matthew 27. 
Matthew 27. Most of these connections are found in the 27th chapter of Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 39. This is the crucifixion narrative. It said, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Isn't that interesting? Exactly what it says in the 22nd Psalm was happening uh, is, is happening here in this crucifixion narrative. So prophetically, Psalm 22 is looking forward to what was going to happen. Look in verse 8 of Psalm 22. People are saying in this these words written by David, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew 27, verse 43, look at what they say at the cross. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. So, same words that were prophetically written by David are applied to the crucifixion narrative here in chapter 27. Look in Matthew, uh, sorry, Psalm 22, verse 16. Psalm 22, verse 16, this is amazing. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They have pierced my hands and feet. Over in Matthew 27, 35, it says, they crucified him. Now, we know that crucifixion was a method of execution uh, that the Roman Empire used, and it entailed piercing someone's hands and their feet, and nailing their hands, nailing their feet to the cross. Now, here's what makes this so amazing. When the words were prophetically written by David in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was actually crucified, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. Isn't that amazing? And yet David here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that one would come who would be pierced, speaking so clearly of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And then back in Psalm 22, look what it says in verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Why is that significant? Well, listen to what it says over in Matthew 27, verse 35. It says, When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isn't that amazing? That's just extraordinary to see that uh, connection. And then verse uh, 22 of Psalm 22 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Those words are applied to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. So there are all these connections uh, between Psalm 22 and the New Testament, which reminds us or shows us that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It was written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God was guiding him to write down prophetically what was going to happen when Jesus Christ was actually upon the earth. Now, some people might be skeptical and say, well, couldn't somebody just uh, have you know, seen the events concerning Jesus and then written Psalm 22 and said it was written before Jesus actually was uh, on the earth? I mean, couldn't they have written these after the events and said they, they were fulfilled prophecy just to kind of uh, get a point across? The answer is no. It's been, it has been proven through archaeology that the Psalms were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ actually walked upon the earth. One of the archaeological finds that proves that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found 
these ancient scrolls that date back before the time of Christ that, that have uh, complete copies of what we can now call the Old Testament. That's why it's such an amazing find. One of the highlights of, of our trip to Israel, Claire and I got to go with some of our church folks and got to spend some time uh, in Israel. You sent us there. We're so grateful for that. Uh, was We got to see some of the original Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in some caves in the Qumran area around the Dead Sea and got to see the jars they were found in. It's just an amazing archaeological find because it proved these words in Psalm 22 were written before... They actually were fulfilled in Christ when he walked upon the earth. Isn't that pretty awesome? Pretty awesome. So, uh, this is a messianic psalm. It's Psalm 22, written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is about Jesus. It's clearly foreshadowing what would happen during Jesus' time upon this earth. So, keeping that in mind, I want to just kind of back up now, and I want to talk to you about what this psalm uh, explains for us. So there are three things we see in this psalm, three realities we see in the psalm. Number one, we see the experience of the cross. The experience of the cross. Again, so clearly in this passage. And and we, we see what Jesus encountered when he was on the cross. What did he encounter? Well, he encountered sorrow. Sorrow. Look what it says in verse 1. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Again, Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he took our sin on himself. And the Bible says that God, Habakkuk 1, God is too holy to gaze upon sin. So in some way in which we can't fully articulate, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, there was this separation in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, the Bible says that, that Jesus, Galatians 3, became a curse for us. And, and, and he was taking our curse in our place. And so he felt on the cross his forsakenness as the Father. Again, in some way, in some way which, in, we, in which we can't fully explain, the Father turned away from the Son as he became sin for us. And Jesus, feeling that forsakenness, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, here's what Warren Wiersbe says about these words. When he, Jesus, spoke these words, he had been engaged in a mysterious transaction with the Father, dying for the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus was made sin and made a curse for us. In some inexplicable way, he experienced what condemned lost sinners experience away from the presence of the Lord. However, note that both David and Jesus call him my God, making it clear that they still knew and trusted the Father. And so Jesus feels his forsakenness on the cross, and he takes these words from the 22nd Psalm and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's feeling sorrow. Look what it goes on to say in verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind. You know, Jesus left the splendor and glory and unceasing worship of heaven, and he came to earth where he was mocked, maligned, mistreated, disrespected, uh, put to death the way they put criminals to death. He was... He was treated as a worm and 
not a man. Verse 6, scorned by mankind. And then verse 7, all who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion, which I believe speaks of the Roman soldiers that gathered around the cross. And so Jesus here is feeling the sorrow of, of separation between he and the Father. He's feeling the sorrow of that forsakenness. He's feeling the sorrow of the rejection of humanity, even though he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Humanity, the, the Jewish religious leaders, rejected him by and large. And so the experience of the cross was one of complete mental anguish. It was a, it was a, 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 a sorrowful experience for our Savior. But not only was it a place of sorrow, it was a place of suffering. A place of suffering. What was the experience of the cross? It was a place of suffering. Look at the physical suffering that's mentioned here in verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Now, scholars believed that when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, he was nailed to uh, the pieces of wood that were laying on the ground. And then after they nailed Jesus, his hands and his feet to those cross beams, they picked up the cross and dropped it in a hole. And scholars believe that that, that putting the, the, the cross into the ground was such a violent thing that people's bones actually came out of joint. And so prophetically, David here is writing of what Jesus Christ would actually experience, his bones coming out of joint there on the cross. My strength, verse 15, is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in... The dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I, I can't imagine how, how excruciating, physically excruciating that would have been. Now remember, before Jesus Christ was crucified, he had already suffered a great deal. Remember, he was betrayed by the kiss of one of his, of his disciples, Judas. And he was arrested by the temple police. And the religious leaders took him through a mockery of a trial. And even in that mockery of a trial, he was mistreated. He was hit with fists. I mean, the Son of God here on earth was hit with the fists of men. He was spat upon. When he was handed over to the Roman soldiers, they pulled the beard from his face to mock him. They made a crown of thorns and placed the crown upon his brow. Can you imagine that pain they beat him with their fists. They wrapped him in a, a shroud of purple to mock him as being the king of the Jews. And then upon Pilate's orders, and Pilate was trying to pacify the Jewish leaders so he would not have to kill him, they had Jesus, uh, or they scourged Jesus. And we know a little bit about the historical background of scourging by Roman soldiers. They would take a long piece of leather with different leather straps at the end, and they would embed in that leather pieces of bone and glass and even metal, and, and they would take a Roman soldier who was trained in the cruel art to come and, and lay that, that whip across the back of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Jews had a law that you couldn't scourge someone more than 39 times. The Romans had no such law. And we know that Jesus Christ was, was scourged 
with that cat of nine tails. I can't imagine the pain as that bone and, and glass embedded in his back and then ripped the skin from his back. And then they pay, placed a, a crossbeam on his raw, open, wounded back. He was so weakened by his loss of blood, by the physical beating he had taken, he could not even carry that crossbeam. You remember they had to enlist a man named Simon of Cyrene to help him to carry the crossbeam to Golgotha, where he would then have his hands and feet nailed to the cross. We also know this about crucifixion. The Romans were experts at making it hurt as much as they could. They, they wanted people to, to experience a maximum amount of pain. And so they took nails that were maybe seven, eight, nine inches long, and, and they would nail those, those nails right there where the hand and the wrist meet. And right there where they would nail it, all the nerves kind of come together. And they would nail it right through that bundle of nerves to inflict maximum pain. And then when they would hang them on that cross and lift the cross up, the person who was being crucified... Uh, to breathe, would have to pull up on those nails. And every time that Jesus pulled up on those nails, he was feeling the searing pain from those, those nails being put through his, the bottom of his hands, through his, the nerve centers in his hands. And I can't imagine, can you, the, the nail that, that went through his feet and held his feet to the cross. So every time he wanted to breathe, he pushed up on the nails through his feet. He, he pulled up on the nails in his hands just to take a breath. And what eventually happened is people who were being crucified lost their strength they, and they were unable to keep pulling up and they would just suffocate because they could not breathe in their collapsed position. And so it was a, a terrible way to die. It was the worst way that the Romans could conceive of to kill somebody. They wanted to inflict maximum pain, maximum suffering, maximum shame. That's what it was all about. They crucified in very public areas so people would walk by and see the end of those who dared to break laws. And Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God who never said a wrong thing, never did a wrong thing, never thought a wrong thing, the perfect Son of God had His hands and His feet nailed to that, to that criminal's cross and was hung between two robbers, two criminals, to suffer physically and also spiritually for us. And so, it says there, I can count all my bones, his weakened condition. They stare and gloat over me, verse 17. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so while Jesus is experiencing the sorrow, the, the spiritual anguish of bearing the sins of the world. Now think about that for a moment. Every wrong thing that's ever been done, every wicked, evil thing that you've ever done, that anyone's ever done, was placed upon Jesus. Can you imagine the spiritual sorrow and anguish of that moment to go along with the physical anguish, the physical pain that he endured from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon? And remember, as you think about that, remember what the Bible says in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? The cross. He died on the cross. He went through that for you and for me. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. If you ever struggle 
with the reality that God loves you, all you got to do is look to the cross. The cross, listen, the cross declares over your life, you are loved by God. And so we see here the experience of the cross, sorrow and suffering. But secondly, not only do we see in Psalm 22 the experience of the cross, but we see the effect of the cross. The effect of the cross. What did the cross accomplish? Jesus Christ breathed his last. And remember what he said to Telestai? It is finished, right? What was finished? What was finished? What was accomplished at the cross? Well, look in your notes. The cross and the subsequent resurrection allowed God to win the ultimate victory. Look what it says in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off, but O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So Jesus is praying for relief from this physical suffering. Then I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And so here's what I believe verse 22 is about. I believe verse 22 foreshadows the resurrection. Because Jesus is hanging on that cross. He knows he's about to die, right? He knows he's about to die. And yet he says, there's coming a time when I will praise you in the midst of my brothers. In other words, death will not have the final say. You will resurrect me where I can declare your praise among my, my brothers, among the disciples. And so I believe verse 22 clearly speaks to the resurrection. And so Jesus is saying, even though I'm dying, even though I'm suffering, this is not the end. This is not in vain. We will win the victory. You say, wait, how, how would this victory manifest itself? Well, look in your next, next sentence. Praise for God's salvation. The salvation that God provi- provides would move out in concentric circles. Concentric circles. So you know what I mean by concentric circles? Uh, you have a circle right here, okay? And then you have a bigger circle around it, right? Everybody with me? Everybody? Okay. You're like, I didn't come for geometry, Wade. All right. All right, so have, okay, circle, bigger circle around it, and then a bigger circle around that. A big, okay, that's concentric circles, all right? So what happens is Psalm 22 teaches us that, that God's glory in providing salvation, our, our, our saving God, his glory would be made known in concentric circles. So how would it start? It would start uh, from Jesus. Look what it says in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And it would go from Jesus to Israel. Look what it says in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob. That's that's the, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And so Jesus is saying, I will praise you. And and news of our of our life giving God will go from me to Israel. So remember, who are the first folks that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection? Who? His disciples, the women at the tomb, and then his disciples, right? He, and, and so the praise went from him 
to the disciples as they celebrated the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. But then it goes from Jesus to Israel, another big circle, to the nations. Look what it says in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And so here's what the Bible's saying. Jesus would die on the cross and be resurrected. He would celebrate the salvation of God. And then he would tell his brothers, the people of Israel, and the Jews would celebrate the salvation of God. And then that news, the good news, the gospel would spread from the Jews, the disciples, into Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and people from every nation would praise the, the salvation that God gives us, right? And so this news of God's salvation would move from Jesus to Israel to the ends of the earth. And by the way, we're recipients of that. We are the ends of the earth. When this was written, guess what? We're a long ways from Israel, aren't we? But the gospel made it. Aren't you glad the gospel made it to you? I'm so glad the gospel in some way made it to Perry, Florida. And that when I was nine, I heard it clearly presented and I responded to Jesus and I was saved. Aren't you glad the gospel made it to you? And that's the, the gospel, the news of our God who saves moving from Jesus to Israel to the very ends of the earth, to all the nations. And so, this is the effect of the cross. God won the ultimate victory and praise for God's salvation has moved from Jesus through his disciples, the, the, the Jewish men, to, and the women, to the very ends of the earth, all the nations. That's what the gospel is doing right now, moving to the ends of the earth. That's the effect of the cross. Now, this is interesting. In the days of Jesus, they didn't have the Psalms labeled like we have them labeled now. They had them collected, but they didn't have them you know, labeled Psalm 21, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. The way that they would direct you to a psalm, is they would quote the first line of that psalm. So, for example, if we live in the first century and I wanted you to read Psalm 23, I would say, hey, read the psalm that starts off, the Lord is my shepherd. And you would know, I was talking about the psalm that we now call Psalm 23. Does that make sense? Now, some scholars believe, and I believe, that when Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of the psalm, right? Not only was he taking those words to express his sorrow and anguish, it was, listen, it was as if Jesus was saying, Psalm 22, Psalm 22, read Psalm 22. And if those Jewish religious leaders who knew, they said, he's talking about that certain psalm that starts out, my God, my God. If they went and read that psalm, not only would they see that this event was clearly prophesied, but this event would bring about ultimate victory as God's salvation would go to all the nations. And so it's almost like, if that's true, it's almost like Jesus on the cross by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, hey, we are winning the victory right now. You can't stop it. The victory is being won by my death on the cross. Isn't that cool? And so uh, that's the effect of the cross. What looked like defeat, it looked like the religious leaders won, right? It looked like that they had taken care of Jesus and, and, and taken care of his influence. What looked like defeat was actually Jesus Christ winning the ultimate victory, purchasing our salvation so he could offer that good news that sinners can be saved if they place their faith in the finished work of Jesus. So that's the effect of the cross. Now here's the third thing, the encouragement of the cross. 
the encouragement of the cross. This picture, this portrait of of Calvary should do something in your life and my life. It it should have an effect on us. It, It should encourage us towards certain responses, certain types of behaviors. So let me say it like this. The reality of the cross should encourage praise. Should encourage praise. Look what it says in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So here's what the Bible's saying. As the effects of the cross reach the nations, people, even the most powerful, would bow down and worship Jesus. In light of what Jesus Christ accomplished by dying on the cross, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in light of the good news that sinners can now be saved because of what Jesus Christ has done, people from every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic level, the powerful, the weak, the rich, the poor, people would bow down and worship King Jesus. And in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, in light of the cross... In light of the reality that he went to the cross and suffered and died in our place, he died for our sins, it should provoke in us worship. Right? Why do we have so much trouble getting stirred up to worship God? Why is it so easy for us to just go through the motions of of corporate or personal worship? Why Why is it so easy for us to to hear about the cross and read about the cross and remain largely unaffected. What Psalm 22 does is Psalm 22, in a very vivid way, brings us to the foot of Golgotha and allows us just to gaze upon the suffering Savior, the one who loved us enough to take all of our sin on himself and die in our place and that should provoke worship in our lives. There's a song that I love, it's sung by Selah. It's called The Beautiful Terrible Cross. Listen to these words of worship written about the cross. There is a beautiful terrible cross where though you committed no sin, savior you suffered the most wicked fate on the cruelest creation of men. Yet on that beautiful terrible cross you did what only you could turning that dark, inspired evil of hell into our soul's greatest good. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life that you lost. We bow in wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. There on that beautiful, terrible cross, though darkness was strong on that hill, you remain sovereign, Lord, still in control as your perfect plan was fulfilled. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life that you lost. We bow in wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. If you feel like your spiritual life is dry and you feel like your, your, your affections for Christ just haven't been real strong as of late, the best way, the best way to stir up your affections for Jesus is to gaze at the cross. I think it was John Stott that said one of my favorite quotes, I don't have it here in front of me, but something to the effect of, if you'll get near to the, the, the cross, it is the blazing center of the glory of God. And if you get near to the cross, its sparks will fall on you. It'll set your soul on fire. And so the best way that I know to stir up your heart in worship and praise is to gaze 
at the cross. Wait, how do you gaze at the cross? You sing songs about the cross. You read passages about the cross. You read books about the cross. I make some recommendations for you. You, you meditate on the cross. You think about the cross. The cross is central in your, in your thoughts, in your meditations, in your mind, in your heart. The cross is central to, to who you are and how you live your life. Keep the cross front and center, and your affections for Christ will be stirred up like never before. And so in light of the reality of the cross, praise should be a growing reality in our lives. Here's the second thing. The reality of the cross should encourage proclamation. Not only praise, but proclamation. Look what it says in verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. So what happened on this cross, the victory that was won through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, would be passed on. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall, procl- they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. When these words were written, hey, when these events happened, I was unborn. How about you? These events happened 2,000 years ago. And yet, people pass down the good news that Jesus says, from generation to generation to generation until it made it to me and to you. And we heard that good news because someone cared enough to, to share it, to proclaim it. And we heard it and we responded in faith and we were saved. And so here's the, the point for you and I. In light of the saving power of the cross, we should preach the cross perpetually. Perpetually. I love what it says over in 1 Corinthians 2. 2. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible where Paul says, I sought, right to the church in Corinth, he said, I sought to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the central theme in the preaching of Paul was the crucifixion of Jesus. He preached about Jesus Christ crucified because that is the center of our faith. Where would we be if Jesus Christ had not died for us? So it is our job who've who've been saved by Jesus, who know the story of the cross, it is our job to pass it down to the next generation. And here's the great danger in America. We know statistically that, that we're losing our, our, our kids. Every, every generation, every subsequent generation, the percentage of those who, are, who identify as born-again believers in Jesus Christ goes down. All right? That's just a fact. That's a, that's a statistical fact. There, there are more born-again believers in my generation than there are in the next generation. So um, what generation am I? I'm generation... Are we generation X? Generation X. And then, and then you've got, behind us, you've got the millennials. And, and, and the percentage of those who are millennials that identifies... And millennials, by the way, is a huge... There are more millennials than there, there were baby boomers. It's a huge population and, and there are fewer millennials that identify as born-again believers in Christ than those in my generation. In my generation, they have a lot. So every generation, the percentage of those who identify with Jesus goes down. That makes sense? So statistically, we're losing our kids. And we, we hear messages like this. Okay, we were saved by Jesus. Praise Him for the cross. Pass it on, right? What happens, though, is, is one generation believes in the gospel, the next generation just assumes it. Okay, yeah, we're gospel people. And if we assume the gospel, the next generation is not even going to hear it. Does that make sense? If we just assume everybody knows it, 
then the next generation is not going to hear it because no one's talking about it. Right? So we cannot assume the gospel. We can't just get together and say, well, every, you know, we're all, we all know the deal. We all know about Jesus. We know about the cross. And let's talk about other things. No, we've got to, we got front and center in our preaching ministry, our connect groups, our families. Uh, it's got to be the gospel. The death, the burial, of res- and resurrection of Christ for ruined sinners like me and you, right? We've got to keep that. We can't assume that the next generation knows the gospel. We've got to share that good news message, be very explicit in sharing that good news message. And so, in light of the saving power of the cross, we should preach the cross perpetually. Now, think about it like this. If the next generation is going to hear the gospel, who are they going to hear it from? They're going to hear it from those in higher education? Not many of them are folks that believe in Jesus. They're going to hear it from entertainment industry? Hollywood? They're going to hear the gospel through that? Not many of them are believers. Athletics? Where are they going to hear the gospel? They're going to hear it from Christians, those that are saved, and want to share that good news message with the next generation. So, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. We see in this prophetic psalm written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ actually was on the earth, the experience of the cross, the effect of the cross, and the encouragement of the cross. What a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Amen?